Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, once again, we feature Howard Hendricks. Even more than his wonderful teachings, most of his students emphasize it was the time that the prof took to mentor them that influenced their lives. Prof went beyond communicating what students should do to convincing them that they could. In front of his classes, Hendricks was somewhat of a comic. He often mimicked the nearsighted Mr. Magoo by scrunching his face, squinting his eyes, and sniffing. Prof's creativity had a purpose, that students might center their lives in Jesus Christ. Today's message is motivation. problem in education and leadership is motivation. Overcoming inertial inertia. Getting a man off the dime. It's always easier to direct a moving object. But resurrection is difficult at any level. It was Charles Kettering who said, a problem well-defined is a problem half-solved. And I would like to take just a moment to define simply for you what is a motive. A motive is that within an individual which incites him to action. That within an individual which incites him to action. Now, immediately we identify two basic forms of motivation. There is, first of all, extrinsic motivation, that which is external to the individual, and there is, secondly, intrinsic motivation. The most significant form of motivation is intrinsic. That is, a man becomes a self-starter. He operates not because he's got a 45 in his head, not because somebody's got an organizational club over his head to whip him into line, but because he wants to. He loves the performing of his task. In the final analysis, the reason you do or do not do anything in human experience is because you either want or you don't want to do it. Now the test of extrinsic motivation is does it trigger intrinsic motivation? There's an awful lot of extrinsic motivation that does not qualify on that score. Parent says to a boy, son, sit down. No. Sit down. No. Son, sit down. No. And so you come over and you grab him by the shoulders and you... Now you'll sit down. Little kid breaks out in a smile and says, Right, Dad, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. 
And it's amazing how much lollipop motivation there is in Christian circles. If you do it, I'll give you a piece of candy. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that after the person gets out under the candy routine, he can't function if his life depended upon it. Any extrinsic motivation you use with an individual reaches its most severe test in terms of does it cause the person to become a self-starter? And for a few moments, I'd like to share with you some of the means that I think you ought to explore and that should become a part of your working capital as a motivator. First, you motivate by creating a need through personal exposure to reality. Now, there are two basic kinds of need. There is, first of all, that which we call real needs, that which a person has intrinsically as an individual, and that which we call felt need. In other words, the needs which are brought to the level of consciousness through one means or another. Now, this individual may have desperate, real need, but if he is not aware of them, if they do not become his personal property so that he says, that's what I need, then it will never motivate him. He must see the need and its value before he does anything about it. And I think that we tend, particularly in our circles, to follow too much of what I call the later motivation rather than the now motivation. Take this down because you will need it someday. You asked me to memorize the telephone directory. My first question is, why? You'll need it someday. But I don't see any value to it. If I need it, I'll look up the number. Oh, but it's much more convenient to have them all at your fingertips. <laughs> so I laboriously get all of this stuff under my belt. When I finally learn it, they change the telephone numbers. And this is exactly what happens to an awful lot of people. It's what I call the storage tank approach to education. The interesting thing is to see how little Jesus Christ ever employed this approach. We teach a person how to use the four laws. Wonderful. And he sits there all the time, you're explaining the process, and he says, right, Roger, shall we move on? <laughs> yeah, I, I got it, Mac. So you say, uh, hey, buddy, we're going out to the beach this afternoon. Oh, really? Great. Let's go. And he goes to the beach, and friend, it's a bust. 
he falls flat on his face. He gets so hung up in the process, he doesn't know the last law from the first law. And he comes back and says, uh, hey, uh, could we go over that again? <laughs> the Communist Party, Hyde tells us, made a lethal mistake in its educational development. They said, from their own experience, they were teaching too much too soon. You try to give the person a whole bowl of wax. And finally they backed off and said, no, just give him a little bit and send him out to a cell meeting. And he goes out and tries to communicate this stuff and somebody nails him to the wall. They knock him all over the lot and he comes back bloody, battered, and he walks in and he says, how did he go? Oh, brother, it was grim. What's the matter? Didn't you know enough? No, I sure didn't. Sit down. Lesson two. Give him lesson two, send him out. Man, they crucify him. Comes back. How'd you make out? Well, it's better, but I need more. Three. You have a perfect illustration of this in Mark chapter four. Our Lord gave a series of lectures on faith. But he was a good teacher, and he gave examinations. Not the kind we give, where you cram it into a person's bean. But he gave them an examination in terms of the laboratory of life. He said, gentlemen, let's go to the other side. And so they all hop in a boat, and they take off in the middle of it. And when they get to the middle of it, Mark says, not only is the boat in the water, but the water's in the boat. And they come rushing to him and say, Lord, don't you even care? We're in a process of going down. This is it. Implication is at least you could help to bail out. And he rebukes the wind and the sea, no problem there. Then he turns to the disciples and says, How is it that you, of all people, have no faith? Who? Why, the man who just heard the lectures on faith by the world's greatest teacher. They wrote a blue book and it came up with an F on it. And friend, that wasn't for faith. They flunk. But you know, the interesting thing is that when you trace through the Gospels, you will discover that it's often in those reality exposures that they learned most about what it meant to trust God. And I have seen an individual motivated almost beyond words when he was exposed to reality where he came face to face with the fact that is what I need. Teach me. Train me. Help me. I had a student at the seminary a few years ago came to me one day after a counseling class. He said, hey, Prof, if you got anything that, uh, you know, will stretch me a little bit. He said, I think I've been over this, but can, can you challenge me? I said, yeah, I think I've got something. So I called up the juvenile home out on Harry Hines in Dallas, a friend of mine out there. I said, hey, my friend, I got a student that needs an education. He said, I got the picture. Send him out. <laughs> so this guy goes out all sales flying. You know, here I am, God's gift to Harry Hines. And he arrives, and his director drops him into the cell of a kid 14 years of age who had been billed on 28 major counts of juvenile delinquency. He's still there. State is simply waiting for him to grow up to put him away permanently. 
so they dropped this kid in the cell. And the kid's sitting with his feet up, propped up on the windowsill. And as he walks in, this kid turns around to him and he says, Hey, what's your line? Every day they send somebody in here with a different line. What's yours? You should hear the student tell this. He said, Boy, prof, I lost it all on the floor. <laughs> but did he ever come back to find out if I knew anything about how to deal with that kind of a situation? You see, it's reality that brings a person face to face with his need. And the reason most of us feel that we are competent is that we've never been sufficiently confused. <laughs> Second, you motivate an individual by feeding and developing responsibility. People thrive on this. My principle is the greater the investment, the greater the interest. Anytime you do anything for a person that that person is capable of doing for himself, you make him an emotional cripple. You make him a paternalistically dependent person rather than independently dependent. One of your tasks as a leader is to stretch your people. And I believe many people are lost to an organization because they've never been stretched. And the result is they shred their motivation and root. They are capable of much more. Years ago before the flood, I used to teach homiletics at the seminary for 15 years. They thought better of that after a while. But I could still remember some of those earlier sessions. What a privilege. You know, you get a kid that's never spoken before in his life, and you call him up, and you ask him to give just a portion of a message. I remember one day I assigned to these guys an illustration. Get yourself an illustration, work it out, so you know exactly how you're going to say what you're going to say. And come. So I called on this guy and I said, okay, buddy, you're on. And boy, he gets up and he grabs this thing like it's going to go out the window and bats his eyes, you know, and looks out over the group. And he starts into the illustration and all of a sudden he stops. He says, good night, prof. I forgot the punchline. He said, let me sit down. I said, no, you can't sit down. Anybody here want him to sit down? Nobody wants him to sit down. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He said, I got it. I said, give it. And he gives the punchline. And he sits down, that little Cheshire grin breaks out on his face, and I walked up to him and I said, Hey, buddy, is that the first time you've ever talked before a group of people? He said, Right, Prof. I said, Man, that's fantastic! And the whole class exploded. Here's a guy in the exciting process of learning how to speak. But I can almost hear it now. You know, we're training some guy to share his faith. All right, brother, you're on. Would you please do it? So he gets up to do it, you know, and he's paralyzed in the process. And we're sitting over on the sideline. We got the little three by five. We're going to give him a critique. And we're sitting there. Oh, no, you know, right now. And turn the thing over to the other side. <laughs> After we get through, okay, thanks a lot. We got to start somewhere. <laughs> My shattered nerves. 20 
37 things on this card I got that are wrong with that. And he just comes right up out of the chair with motivation. Can scarcely wait to get another opportunity, right? Now, do you know what this individual needs, friend? You can bring a moron in off the street and he'll tell you five things that are wrong with it. What he really needs to know is what is right about it. What have I got going for me? And when I find something in which I can place my confidence, then I start making progress. But now there's a key here. Don't miss this or you miss everything in motivation. The key to encouragement is knowing what to get excited about. And most of us don't. We are excited about the wrong thing. Most of us are excited about what we're doing rather than about what our people are doing. I taught a class at the seminary for all 20 years and how to study the Bible for yourselves. I never cease to be amazed that they pay me to teach this course. Not very much, but they pay me. <laughs> Most exciting course in all of the world. To see a kid come off a campus, even out of a Bible school, where he's had Bible crammed down his throat till it's coming out his ears, but has never once learned how to get into it for himself, and see a little guy like a kid with a fire engine come up after class and say, Hey, hey, problem, let me show you what I found in this passage. I had a class for professional men some years ago. I had a doctor in that class, a neurosurgeon that I had led to Christ. And I can still remember this guy's enthusiasm over first-hand exposure to the Word, just getting him into it. And, you know, he never had enough time to share in the class. So he'd come up after class and say, Hey, Hendricks, let me show you what I found in this passage. You know what he's saying to me? Luther never heard of this, Hendricks. <laughs> I'll bet you Calvin never saw that. And he didn't say it, but what he was really saying to me was, and I'll bet you haven't seen it either, Hendricks. And you know, I wouldn't tell him I had. You know what most of us say? Well, yeah, Doc, that's pretty good. In fact, I remember 32 years ago when I first started. <laughs> I saw that truth. Boy, does that ever motivate him. Friend, you never saw a seminary professor as excited as I get. I froth at the mouth and fairly need to be led away. I go flat through that ceiling. I say to him, Doc, did you see that? He said, that's right, Hendricks, and that's not all I've seen. Let me show you some more. <laughs> saw his wife one day in the parking lot at the church. She said, what in the world are you doing to my husband? I said, why, what's the matter with him? Oh, she said, I got to set the alarm clock to tell this guy what time to go to bed at night. That's a different wrinkle. You know why? Because of his personal intake of the word. He's got confidence in me. Friend, if I don't know more about the word of God than the kids walking in to my freshman class at the seminary, then I'm disqualified for the job. We assume that. The test of my teaching is not how much of the word I know but how much of the word my students know as a result of what I do for them. And that's the test of your ministry. And by the way, that's what develops confidence. One of the greatest problems in counseling today 
I never cease to be amazed at the men who come to the seminary, graduates of leading universities, extremely well endowed. You know what their number one problem is? Confidence. A guy walked into my office some time ago, he said, Prof, I think I'm going to bag it. I'm going to bail out. I said, why? Well, he said, frankly, I just don't think I have it. You know, I had the hardest time to keep from just laughing in his face. I thought to myself, my friend, if I ever told the rest of the student body that you don't have it, they'd be taken off. Their reaction would be, man, if he doesn't have it, how in the world are we going to hack it? But you see, it makes no difference what a man has, as long as he has never developed his confidence level to the point at which he is convinced he can cut it, he makes very little progress. And I find the way you develop that confidence level is as a person who draws water yourself, who has earned the right, who has generated some confidence, to communicate some of that to him by way of encouragement so that he knows this is what I have. There's a fourth way to motivate an individual, and that's by showing him how. My judgment, one of the greatest things that ever hit the Christian scene was the little four-law booklet. And I'll tell you why. Because for one of the first time, somebody put in a structured form what it means to share your faith. And that's what the average layman is looking for. You know why our churches are not succeeding? I'll tell you one reason. Our churches specialize in exhortation without explanation. One layman put it this way, I'm so fed up hearing what I ought to do, I'm already covered over with guilt with respect to that. What I really need to know is how do you do it? And this simply provides a mean. I wonder how many times we have told people they ought to have a family altar. No home should be without one. I was talking on this at Mount Hermon a number of years ago. A guy came up, he said, Hey, uh, do they handle these here at the bookstore? I got the choicest illustration because many of you specifically can relate to it. There is a distinguished professional gentleman in the city of Dallas by the name of Dr. Jack Cooper, probably one of our leading ophthalmologists. By his own testimony, a member of an evangelical church for 10 years, going nowhere, though a part of the power structure. Somebody from Crusade came along one day and said to him, Hey, Doc, are you sharing your faith? He said, No. As a matter of fact, I'm not. He said, How come? He said, Frankly, I don't know how. He said, Well, we've got a lay training program coming into town. He said, Would you like to get into it? He said, Count me in. And so they took this prominent surgeon, taught him how to use the four-law booklet, took him out to Love Field, showed him how it worked in action. He said, Let me try it. He had the opportunity of leading some people to Christ. And then he began to think, you know, 
I ought to be using this in my profession. Well, you know how much time you spend in a doctor's office. So he started putting the four law booklets out in the office. People go come in, you know, and go through all of the garbage and then finally run out of stuff. <laughs> and they pick up this, huh, this, this is interesting. So they'd start to read the thing through. And he'd say, man after man, woman after woman, young person after young person, walk in to my room. And they say, hey, doctor, that was a fascinating booklet you got out there. So like, you know more about it? He said, yeah. So first thing you know, he's leading them to Christ in his office. Then it occurred to him, you know, there's a better way. You know, you go to an eye doctor, he's got a chart up on the wall. <laughs> you know, he usually asks me, would you read that chart up on the wall? <laughs> you know, what wall? <laughs> You're looking for that big E. So he's got the four laws up there. He says, okay, try it on this side. You go on the other side and you come in, he says, man, you not only need glasses, I'll bet you need something else. <laughs> you know, last year during my sabbatical, I was out in the most remote section of India, speaking by interpretation. And I used the illustration of Dr. Jack without using his name figure, and who in the world would know him out here? And after I got through, an Indian came up and he said, uh, you were talking about Dr. Jack Cooper, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, how did you know? He said, I took graduate work at the university in Dallas, and while I was there, my eyes went out. He said, I got the picture. <laughs> and here's this guy in a professional ministry, way out in a remote section of India, having a fantastic opportunity of sharing his faith because a doctor in Dallas was reached by somebody who didn't tell him he ought to be doing it, but who told him how. And I would challenge you, gentlemen of God, work hard at finding some means of structuring, of packaging, what you are trying to give to people in terms of how. You'll sweat like crazy, but it'll be the greatest investment. Fifth, by personal enthusiasm. You know, I don't know about you, there's one thing I appreciate about a speaker. I don't care what he's talking on. I appreciate a man who's at least sold on what in the world he's talking about. Do you know I have the strongest urge in many churches to stop a guy right in the middle of a sermon? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? I'm going to try it someday when I get up enough nerve. <laughs> to stop right in the middle and say, hold it, Mac, hold it. I don't think you really believe that stuff. Oh, yes, I do. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. No, you couldn't possibly. Yes, I do. No, I do. Great, tell us about it. <laughs> and boy, my friends, while you're talking uh, about the church and dumping on them, I have heard individuals who were paralyzed beyond words talking about the most exciting truth in all of the world. You're not exempt from this. And I'll tell you, my friend, after you've been in the game, as some of you are for as long as you've been, that's when the problem sets in. You know what the easiest time to teach in seminary? The first time you've ever taught the course. You don't know anything. You're about two hours ahead of the hounds. <laughs> yeah, you're working like crazy. Come in, hey, let me tell you, somebody has a question, that's a good question, buddy. Hold that for the next hour. <laughs> You run out, you bone up on it like crazy. Next time you come, boy, you begin to get the thing organized. You begin to know what in the world you're talking about. The third time, man, it's really polished. The fourth time, uh, 
Wonderful to have you in this course, gentlemen. You don't know how many have spoken highly of it. <laughs> the fifth time. Your attitude is so crucial in his area of communication. Bruce was talking about skill, but attitude. And if I had to choose one, I'd take attitude because then I will learn the skill. You show me a man with a passion to communicate and I'll show you a person who will read every book, talk to any individual, go to any training session to find out how in the world can I be more effective. pastor in a local church asked me to come to evaluate his first teacher training session. He'd been building the thing up for six months. Beloved, we got to be trained. Please come to the teacher training. Going to start next Sunday night, six o'clock. Sure to be there. Very important. <laughs> so next Sunday I come. About five minutes before six, one person has arrived. Another one arrived at six. I could almost see the guy deflated right in front of my eye. You know, it was just like pushing a pin into him and <laughs> so he was sitting here and he says, well, I guess we better wait a few more minutes for some of the latecomers to arrive. And the other latecomer arrived. <laughs> and there were three people. Do you know how he started the teacher training session? This is exactly how. Well, you know, this is one of the problems we're facing today. We're living in the last times. <laughs> and people are just not motivated and interested. And after he got through, he said to me, well, Hendricks, what do you think of that? I said, you really want to know? He said, yeah. I said, how straight do you want it? Oh, he said, just as you feel. I said, you know what your number one problem was? No, you. Oh, he said, what in the world would you do if three people showed up? I said, you really want to know? Right. I said, I go right through that ceiling. Three people, think of it. Man, what a teacher training class we got. I said, what in the world is, shred is the point of shredding the motivation of three people that showed up because of the 35 who didn't? And I'll tell you the test of your motivational skill. And that's what you do in a college life when the night you put all of the work into it, all of the publicity and the rest of it, and 12 people show up. Now, I know what you can do when you got 12,000. What I really want to know is what you can do with 12. Because that's the test of how excited you can become. And believe me, my friend, it's contagious. My principle is if you want people to bleed, you're going to have to hemorrhage. So cut the jugular. Number six, by intensifying interpersonal relations. The closer you are to a person, the greater the potential for motivation. And I think some of us are too far removed from the people we are trying to infect. I belong to a church in Dallas, a wonderful group of people. And some time ago I went to the Philippines and their motto is, go ye into all the world and take pictures. <laughs> so they gave me a camera and some film. They said, Hendricks, you're going to the Philippines. Take some pictures. So I went to the Philippines and I took some pictures. They said, you've been to the Philippines. You have some pictures. Please show us your pictures. 
I showed them my pictures. They said they are lovely pictures. <laughs> and on the way home, I said to my wife, man, what a waste of time and money. I said, now we're going into plan B. So we're going to invite couples over selectively Sunday night after church. You know, just happen to have some pictures. Well, one night I invited three of my doctor friends to come over. So I said, hey, man, I got some pictures you guys are really go for. So I was out in the Philippines. I saw a clinic out there. Tremendous thing. Started by a professor who used to teach at Harvard Medical School. Walked out the front door one day. Decided God was calling him out here. Started this thing from scratch. Now he's got it completely indigenized. All doctors, nurses, the rest of it, Filipinos. I want you to see it up in Ipugal territory. So I showed him the pictures of this thing. Terrific. I have some wonderful shots of the pharmacy with these empty shelves in it. So, next picture. So what's that? So that's the pharmacy. The pharmacy. Where are the pharmaceuticals? I don't know. They don't have them there. <laughs> he says, well, wait a minute. Oh, let's go back there. He said, how in the world can you have a pharmacy without pharmaceuticals? So I don't know. They have one over there. <laughs> Next picture. We get all the way through the pictures. Guess what the first question is? Hey, how can you have a pharmacy without pharmaceuticals? You know, those three doctors and I got together $3,500 worth of pharmaceuticals. We just shipped the eighth shipment. You know how? Personal involvement. Seven, by dissolving emotional blocks. Now, I believe a person who is angry, who is resentful, who is embarrassed, who is fearful, who's in any way threatened, is a poor prospect for learning. That's why I say what you are to this individual is far more important than what you say to him or even what you do for him. What you are will probably determine how much he hears of what you say and how much he does of what you suggest. But you know, that calls for a climate, for an atmosphere of acceptance. We've had some interesting times in Dallas and in many other areas now with the whole home Bible class concept. And in training people, I have found one of the most important ingredients in preparing a teacher is to show him that the climate of acceptance is far more important than the content which he presents. Now that's real hard for the average evangelical to choke down. But we've learned it the hard way. Let me give you an illustration. We were going through the gospel by Mark. We had a guy in there who had been to a university, you know, a church-related school, agnostic number one. So we're going through the process of studying Mark, and one day he blurts out right in the middle of it, hey, hold it, hold it. Then I got a question. He said, you don't mean to tell me that you're saying that Jesus Christ is God, are you? Now what would you do? 
Can you imagine what would happen in the average adult class? You don't mean to tell me you're saying that Jesus Christ is God or I can see everybody in the group turn around. Who in the world is that? They take the hide off them. You know what we have to train a person to do? We make a hero out of that guy. Hey, Jim, here's a guy really coming to grips with the issues. Tremendous question. But all you have to do, my friend, is give him the burn, slower, fast. And I've seen an entire class empty out in one week. Talking to one of my students working with Crusade at one of the schools, he said, would you believe it, Prof? Because of an ignoring of this principle, I emptied a class, a training class of 27 guys who were so turned on because they asked me a question that was threatening. And frankly, I didn't know the answer, and I just didn't have the guts to say, hey, friend, that's a tremendous question. Frankly, I don't have the answer to it. I'm going to have to bone up on that. Do you mind if I write it down? Got any more questions like that? But you know what he did? The same thing that anybody is prone to do, what you've seen in a professorial, professorial situation where you ask a prof a question, and he says, well, uh, consequently, inasmuch as we're from thereupon, mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, he goes all the way around now. I know he doesn't know the answer. But, you know, he'd never say that. Greatest professors I ever had. Brilliant beyond words. Robert Dick Wilson said, the greatest linguist of the next generation, and I believe that has been true. And the question was asked in that professor's class one day, and he said, son, I have seldom been asked a perceptive question like that, and quite frankly, I don't think I am prepared to give you a well-thought-through answer. My answer at this point would probably be superficial, but I'll study it, and I'll give you an answer. And you know, the guy's stature went up like this, because we had been exposed to all of the frauds who didn't have the answers to, but didn't have the security to say, I don't know. I hope you do. And that atmosphere that you create will go a long way toward motivating people to continue to ask the kinds of questions that we want them to ask. An eighth one I'd like to suggest is that you motivate an individual by unconditional love. Some of you know I've been studying the life of Christ now for 20-some years primarily with a view to determining how did Jesus Christ train his disciples? How did he motivate men? How is it that he could say, follow me, and a guy gets up and drops everything, makes an irrevocable decision and takes off? You know, the only answer I've ever been able to find is that the reason why men followed Jesus Christ is that he loved them and he accepted them unconditionally. Do you ever think of all of the inane things people said in the presence of the personification of truth? When I first started, I would have thought Jesus Christ would say, look, gentlemen, I'm only going to be here for three and a half years. I'm the truth. Sit down. Take this stuff down. You're going to need it. No, you just get that in seminary. (laughs) 
He said to the disciples, gentlemen, I got a lot of things to tell you, but you're not able to bear them now. But that's no problem to me, because when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. No great hang-up over the fact that I've got this compulsion to give you all of this stuff day before yesterday. But he spends all of his time loving them. Sends them out two by two, they fall flat on their face. Guy comes back and says, hey, Lord, the disciples goofed. They weren't able. So he performs the miracle and they say, hey, how come? What happened? Whenever you see him in operation, he is not upbraiding them for their questions. In fact, the only time he ever rebukes them, and this is very significant to me, is he rebukes them for their lack of faith. That's why he said to Peter three times over after the fall, Peter, do you love me? That's the issue. Love produces loyalty, commitment, without a string attached. Our ninth and last one I want to share with you. As you motivate an individual by believing that God can make him a significant person. How you see a man will probably determine how that man functions. You see him as a problem, that's how he'll function. I can only remember two school teachers I ever had. One was my fifth grade teacher, the other was my sixth grade teacher. My fifth grade teacher was Miss Simon. I've never forgotten her. Sort of a female dreadnought type, very hostile. And she didn't like me at all and not without reason. She used to tie me to my chair with a rope. <laughs> tie my hands behind my back like this to the chair, take mucilage paper, start around here, and go all the way around the front. Now, Howard, you will sit still and keep quiet. So what else do you do? <laughs> Finally, I was graduated for her, from her class for obvious reasons, and I went into my sixth grade teacher, Miss Noe, six feet, four inches tall, sort of a feminine version of Sherlock Holmes. I used to say, if the dear woman had done nothing but just stand erect, she would have done something for you. And I can remember walking into that class and she said, oh, you're Howard Hendricks. She said, I've heard a lot about you. <laughs> and then she jarred me by saying, but I don't believe a word of it. And men, I want you to know I met the first person in my life who ever communicated to me that they believed in me. And you know, I never let her down. My most vivid memories in that class were working like crazy at my desk and occasionally looking up at the door with that little window in it and framed in the window would be Miss Simon, my fifth grade teacher. She had just come to see this thing which was come to pass. <laughs> there he is! sitting clothed and in his right mind. <laughs> you know, some time ago I was invited to come back to my church for the 40th anniversary and it's very interesting because some of the dear people would come up afterwards all hour. <laughs> We're so proud of you. 
And I didn't say it, you understand, I'm a very gracious person. But I had the strongest urge to say, lady, you really didn't help. I can remember on that hand the people who ever saw me as something other than a problem. You know, I've been teaching just long enough at the seminary to see that some of the guys who were the problem, you know, oh boy, a sigh of relief when they get through, Woo! are the people who somehow are making an impact for God. And the guy who took off all of the awards we're still looking for. What am I suggesting? You make a monument to mediocrity? No, I'm suggesting that motivation always makes the difference. Not a man's ability, but his application. Father, as the greatest of motivators who in your love drew us to yourself, we pray that thou wilt make us highly infectious men of God who dare to believe that your specialty is still doing the impossible. Taking hopeless individuals and turning them into men and women who have an impact for the Savior. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Howard Hendricks, affectionately known as The Prof. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.